Namaste and welcome. So today we are continuing um, the uh, series on the Bhagavad Gita life lessons or eight life lessons from the Bhagavad Gita um, and the series titled from the vision of eternity and the life lesson today that we'll discuss is something that m most people are very concerned or interested in or concerned about and that's happiness but uh, before we start i'd like to um, invite you all to join with us in a few minutes of um, mantra meditation uh, in order to clear the mind and the heart
happiness. If we look at um, conventional definitions of happiness, or if I ask you to define happiness, how would you define what it is? I mean, everybody is seeking happiness. What, what is it? What is that state? And I think if I ask you that question directly and you have to think about answering it, most people get a little bit stuck. They're not quite sure how to define it. But the general definition is a sense of well-being and joy or contentment. So if we go with that for now and use that as what it is that we're speaking of, the fact is that everybody is looking for happiness in their life. In fact, this is the 
almost the object of life. And nobody wants to be miserable. We all seek this experience. And what is quite amazing from a, um, the perspective of the Bhagavad Gita, it describes how generally in this world, people's quest for happiness begins with a outward journey. We look outside of ourselves and we're always looking for something or someone that we hope will fill us with this experience of, of happiness. And that is quite extraordinary if you think about it. It's kind of unfortunate, I guess is the best way to describe it, that we actually have so much invested in this quest for happiness. It's really what's driving us and our decisions. But we're not very thoughtful about it. We take so many uh, things for granted. This quest for pleasure, I mean, it has been going on since time immemorial and it is something that we seek. I can remember in the 70s, the um, one of the, the major rock bands still around the Rolling Stones, they had this huge hit, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And they're fine. and I tried, and I tried, and I tried, I can't get no satisfaction. That's quite a stunning admission. Here we're talking about people that were not known to be very subtle or very restrained. We're talking about people that were leading massively hedonistic lifestyle and just going for it in terms of all the demands of the senses, all forms of stimulation. And yet there is this admission that in spite of all this endeavor, I'm not experiencing what it is that I'm looking for. I'm not feeling fulfilled. I'm not feeling satisfied. And unfortunately, most people, instead of trying to question why, why is it that I'm having such difficulty finding this state of happiness or pleasure. All I can think of doing is, okay, let's try something different. Let's turn up the volume. Let's amp it up, increase the voltage, do something. Let's try, you know, an increased, um, do it harder and maybe that's where we're going to find it. But if we actually examine from a yogic perspective this experience of, of, of happiness, the attempt to find happiness, it becomes very telling because we learn that something can at one time appear to be quite heavenly to us. And exactly the same thing can also become very 
a hellish experience. And it's like, how did that, how did that happen? And of course, example of, of this would be the idea, and we've used the example so many times before, of a, a certain piece of music that we really like, or a certain type of food that we really like, and so then you're just going to be subjected to hearing that music over and over and over for you know 24 hours straight and let's see how heavenly that is that I just love it and now I hate it and the same thing your favorite food okay that's all you're going to eat for the next three days you're not going to have anything else just that and the more you do it the less pleasurable it becomes and that's kind of like really astonishing I mean, if somebody gives me one dollar, okay, I got one dollar. Then somebody else gives me another dollar. Now I've got double. And somebody else gives me ten dollars. Okay, now I've got twelve dollars. As, as somebody gives me money, what I have increases. But this pleasure or the quest for happiness experience, the more I do it, it's not that I actually become happier. In fact, the opposite tends to happen. And then the question is, why? Why is, why is this happening? Well, there's a few reasons from a, a spiritual perspective. One reason is that if we break down any material thing, like this iPad here, or a candy, or whatever, any, any material thing. We break it down to its smallest parts, its atomic parts. Those atoms do not contain one ounce of bliss in them. It's not the nature of the material energy to possess blissfulness. So it doesn't matter how I rearrange it and what form it takes. By putting it into my body through my mouth or eyes or ears or rubbing it against my skin or whatever, no matter what, I, I can stimulate my senses. I can stimulate my mind. But actually nothing rubs off. Nothing enters. Nothing penetrates. There is no real bliss or happiness contained within the material energy. It's not its nature. The other thing that needs to be considered is, as we've discussed many times before, this, this foundational spiritual principle is that I am not this body which I am wearing. I'm wearing this body. This body is a vehicle that I'm using. My mind is a vehicle that I'm wearing or using. It is not me. Therefore, no matter what I do to my body, it actually doesn't affect me, the spiritual being within. So I can be exposed to just vast amounts of material stimulation, sensual stimulation, material experience. But in spite of it all, I, I am left actually feeling quite, quite empty. 
So one of the observable things in the quest for happiness or satisfaction, fulfillment in this world is that many of the things which we mistakenly think are giving us joy, in fact what they may be doing, those experiences may be doing, is kind of relieving us from the boredom or the emptiness of the experience of life in general that most people are feeling and most people are experiencing. It's something to take our mind off things. They used to have this form of kind of pretty inhumane punishment in the old days. They had this thing called a dunking stool. And it was like a, a long pole with a chair on the end. And then there was like a, a fulcrum on the bank of a river or a pond. And somebody gets tied to the chair and they put them out over the water. And then as part of their punishment, they just they lift this end up and this end goes down and the person goes underwater. And they come to the point of almost drowning. And they're just struggling and it's just like this horrible experience of suffocating. And then just before they take a big gulp of, of water into their lungs, they're thrust up. And as they come blasting out of the water, there's this, <gasps> this gasp for air. And that moment, that gasp of air, it's like, oh, it feels so good. <laughs> but in that situation, everybody else that's standing around watching this happen, they're already breathing and they're not feeling any great joy from breathing. But the person that was deprived of it and then now suddenly could get a big gulp of air becomes like, oh, you know, like it was a wonderful experience to be able to breathe. So if we are quite analytical, we think about things very closely, we'll find that a lot of the stuff that we say gives us happiness or is bringing joy to our life may quite often be a temporary relief from a generally suffering or boring condition. And because this is like a, a, a bright moment, meaning it takes my attention away from my regular life, therefore I consider it to be, to be happy. Um, I can remember on this uh, TV show one time, I, uh, there was these interviews of people and this woman was talking about her life and how she tries to maintain a very positive outlook on her life. So every single day when she gets up, she really thinks, I am going to look for that moment of happiness in my life and I'm always going to be on the lookout for it. And at some point during the day, I will have a happy experience and I will really seize that and hold it close to me and value it. And by doing that, she says, it helps me deal with the rest of my day. Well, I don't mean to be um, disrespectful, but that doesn't sound like a really good deal to me. 
most people, if you ask them, how often are you happy every day? How much time in one day do you actually feel some happiness? And it kind of surprises me that most people when they actually have to think about it and then they start actually thinking and they're trying to figure it out and you try to help them along by saying, okay, wh when was the last time you really felt happy? There was some joyfulness and you know, laughed out loud or you just felt really contented. When was the last time it happened? And then they're deep in thought again, trying to remember when it was and it gets down to this point where you ask most people, well, would you say on a good day, maybe you have like 15 minutes of actual joyfulness in your, in your life? And most people go, yeah, maybe something like that. You know, that's not a very good deal. We have about um, 1,440 minutes in a day. And of 1,440 minutes, if we're only experiencing 15 minutes of happiness, that doesn't sound like a very good deal to me. But we often don't want to be that kind of analytical. It sort of like um, gets us down, I, I, I think. The Bhagavad Gita actually really looks at the subject of happiness in some detail. In the very beginning of the Bhagavad Gita, one of the principal personalities. His name was Arjuna. He was a great warrior prince. And he was about to participate in a, in a huge battle. Arjuna was known for his um, heroism. He was a, a, a quite a, an outstanding personality. And he was suddenly, it dawned on him that in this particular battle that he was about to enter, and he had just had his chariot um, drawn in between the two opposing armies and he was eyeballing everybody. And it suddenly dawned on him that in the opposing army, his grandfather, whom he honored, who was actually a very saintly person, a very elevated yogi as well as a great warrior, his cousins, who are in, in the Vedic system, are considered his brothers, brother-in-laws, father-in-laws. He just saw all this mixture of relatives that he was going to face on battle and, and, and kill. And he became very overwhelmed. And he was considering, how will I be able to live? How will I find happiness or anything of value in my life? if I must now live at the cost of others' lives. And he became so overwhelmed that he totally lost his composure. He was breaking down. He was quivering. He was crying. He could not hold his bow and arrow. He was feeling unsteady. So in many ways, the Bhagavad Gita um, begins with and actually ends with this subject of, of happiness and where and how we are to um, find it. So as we have spoken about in, in some of the um, earlier talks that we've given previously, particularly in relation to um, the question of who am I, the, you know, the science of identity, 
we have spoken about the fact that our natural condition, and we're talking about our natural spiritual condition apart from this gross material body, is to live and to exist in a state of not just little bit okay, happy, but a state of, of great blissfulness. In Sanskrit, this is called Ananda. So, to be able to exist in this condition and to experience this condition is um, what is actually most natural for us. And this is why each of us is, we feel driven, we feel compelled to search and to look for things because it is part of our spiritual nature to exist in this state. We have also spoken in, in, in the past about this quest for, for happiness, this quest for joy. It must actually be undertaken on a, on a spiritual level. Simply running after things in this world and chasing experiences in this world will not provide us what it is that we really look for. In the Bhagavad Gita, there is one verse in the fifth chapter, the 21st verse, it says, such a liberated person is not attracted to the material sense pleasure, but is always in trance, enjoying the pleasure within. In this way, the self-realized person enjoys unlimited happiness for he concentrates on the Supreme. So in this verse, we are being told that we need to direct the search for happiness actually inward rather than out to this world, the world in which we find ourselves. It has to become an in internal quest where we are um, actually in touch with our true identity. In the Sanskrit, uh, for this verse I, I just read out, there is this term Brahma Yoga. And it means to be absorbed, to be focused, concentrated and absorbed on another experience, another world. We have this external world that we see all around us that is subject to change, is constantly changing, is never going to remain the same. It is made up of a, a substance, material energy that doesn't matter what we do with it, how much we cram into our body or on our body will not fulfill us and give us that experience that we are seeking. And the Bhagavad Gita is shining light on the fact that there is another world, a world that is within. And an intelligent person does not chase the ephemeral or fleeting idea of happiness in this world, but rather goes within to seek out 
another source of spiritual experience and joy of what is described as ananda. So in the next verse it says, an intelligent person does not take part in the sources of misery which are due to contact with the material senses. O son of Kunti, such pleasures have a beginning and an end, and so the wise man does not delight in them. I mean, it's like, wow, this is quite a novel concept for most people because of the society in which we live and the way in which people view this world we do not actually hear these types of ideas but there's a couple that really really jump out one is the nature of so-called material happiness the, the little joys that we can get in life they have a beginning and therefore they must have an end you cannot have a beginning without an end that is the nature of things part of this duality so if something has a beginning and we know that it surely will end, of course, putting a lot of effort into that experience is obviously not going to be very smart. It's like we become so invested and then we get so disappointed when our happiness comes to an end. And here, Krishna is saying that we should understand that this experience that we're having is coming about simply because we're getting a little stimulation somehow to our senses of the senses of the body and it might provide some element of joyfulness but we must know that this joy will pass it will not fulfill us it will not satisfy us and it will pass then the next verse I'll read just is, is two verses beyond that last one. This is from the fifth chapter, 24th verse. One whose happiness is within, who is active and rejoices within, and whose aim is inward, is actually the perfect mystic. He is liberated in the supreme and ultimately he attains the supreme. So this rounds out now this idea of this journey within, that there is a genuine, real spiritual experience that is to be had. The process of yoga is the process of undertaking this journey and fortifying ourselves and redirecting this quest for happiness to a place where we can actually generally, genuinely um, find this uh, a very high level of fulfillment. So um, these are actually quite big subjects and we're just touching them very briefly because the, the subject is actually quite a big subject but of course you have the opportunity to um, go back and review um, these talks again online and maybe look at the verses and consider and contemplate and you will find that if you are 
engaging in a spiritually directed life, if you have spiritual practices that you're adopting, the foundation of which is this uh, process of chanting, this transcendental sound, the spiritual sound, this kirtan meditation or japa meditation, that it brings a transformation and a purification. And we will find that when we revisit these topics, as we are growing spiritually, our understanding and appreciation of them broadens and, and deepens. But there's a whole new thing now being introduced, a very unique perspective on happiness that the Bhagavad Gita speaks about. And it's in the very last uh, chapter, the 18th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. Speaking to Arjuna, Krishna says, O best of the Bharatas, now please hear from me about three kinds of happiness by which the conditioned soul enjoys and by which he sometimes comes to the end of all distress. And it's like, okay, well, we're talking about three different types of happiness, three different categories of so-called joy or joyful experience. And sometimes by experiencing one of these particular types of joy, it may help a person come to the end of all distress. So what has been spoken of here is the actual liberated condition, a full spiritual awakening. Material life is equated with distress. It doesn't matter how so-called perfect your life is, how privileged you may be, what sort of opportunities you have and experiences that you have. Number one, these things will not fulfill you. And even if you are unrestricted in trying to enjoy these different opportunities, eventually your body ages and your ability to have these experiences becomes severely limited or restricted. And then eventually you are forcibly dragged away from this body by the experience of death. Therefore, the whole journey is regarded as being unnecessary and definitely undesirable. It just does not end well. So what are these three types of happiness? In the Bhagavad Gita, they have, they speak of a, a common thing that is spoken about in, in the Vedas in general. It is what is called in Sanskrit triguna, which means the three qualities. Um, Srila Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada and his uh, Guru Dev also use the English terminology, the modes of material nature, the three modes of material nature. And what it does is describe three types of of completely, you, you, you cannot see it anywhere, it's, it's invisible, but powerful forces, energetic forces, 
that permeate the material world and the material experience. One of these forces is called sattva guna, which is translated as the mode of goodness. And in this condition, you'll see people being more attracted to um, simple lifestyle, natural kind of lifestyle, not being overly agitated and driven crazy by so many desires and things. People that live in a more peaceful existence. I mean, music, food, um, the type of house or living environment that you have, your work experience, all of these things are influenced by these three modes. The mode of passion is usually epitomized by intense desire and longing. So there's this intense agitation. It, the creative impulse is because of this mode of passion. And so people are driven to build massive cities and to engage in passionate undertakings. But the result, the end result of this mode of passion, the Rajaguna, is distress. It's inescapable. If you become, if you pursue and become influenced by this energy, this passionate energy, it will always end in distress. And then the third one is called Tamaguna which literally means the mode of, of ignorance. And it's epitomized by laziness, sloth in general, um, a very depressed mental and physical state, or a state of intoxication when you cannot think clearly and you're unaware of how you're behaving and what you're doing. And it always ends in, 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 in darkness. In darkness, in great distress, in different forms of, of craziness or insanity. So it's not that a person, even within a day, a person may be feeling at different times the influence of these three different forms of energy at different times and, and responding differently to different types of stimulation. The quest for happiness or pleasure is also very shaped by which one of these types of energy or a combination of them that we're being influenced by. So I, I will speak about the mode of, of um, passion first because it's kind of like this is actually kind of quite far out. It says that happiness which is derived from contact of the senses with the objects of the senses and which appears like nectar at first but poison in the end is said to be of the nature of passion. I mean, how many times have I been through this in my life? How many times have we all had this experience where we entered into something 
whether it was, you know, an attempt to really enjoy ourselves. Some, you know, people go off to the beach and they're just like so excited. I mean, you've got the family in the car, the kids, and everybody's just going to have a good time, Disney World, whatever. You're out there and then you're going for it and you're going just running around and you're eating and drinking and doing all this stuff. And then you come to the end of the outing and how's everybody doing? Cloud nine? No, everybody is tired. If you've been out in the sun, people are sunburned. The kids are in the back and they've gone from just excitement, yeah, yeah, to like, stop it, stop it. <laughs> Everybody's bitching at each other and fighting and it's just like, you know, everybody's tearing their hair out and the drive home is just like completely miserable. And it's like you can barely drag yourself in the door and it's like, really, was that worth it? I mean, really, was that actually worth it? Relationships, people enter into relationships with such ideals and such hope for happiness, that which in the beginning appears like nectar, but in the end tastes like poison. <laughs> So, I mean, we can just use so many examples. If you reflect on this in your own life, it's kind of like, okay, well then, why would you pursue this? Even though it may be sensually quite stimulating, stimulating to my senses, and I'm kind of anxious and anticipating and just elated and going for it. Why would I do that if I know where it's going to go? It's not smart. But we usually don't think like that. We just act on these impulses and these hopes and aspirations. Speaking about another type of happiness, the one in the mode of, of ignorance, it says, and that happiness which is blind to self-realization. Blind to self-realization, meaning it, there is no point where a person goes, what am I doing? and thinks about an alternative. They just dive into it, get lost, go for it. And you think of different types of drug addiction, um, alcoholism, different types of addictions and everything. That happiness which is blind to self-realization, which is delusion from beginning to end, and which arises from sleep, laziness, and illusion is said to be of the nature of ignorance. It just does not end well. And you think of, you know, people, I mean, the worst cases that you can think of, are, you know, drunks or drug addicts that are living in the street have actually given away their life, opportunity, their health, their peacefulness of mind. They live in squalor. And it's just, you know, delusional existence. Thinking that somehow I'm going to find happiness at the end of this. Somehow my life is going to be better. So the third form of, of, of happiness that is discussed is that which in the beginning may be just like poison 
but at the end is like nectar and which awakens one to self-realization is said to be happiness in the mode of goodness. And that's like, what? You know, an example that's often given in relation to this subject is um, when a person gets yellow jaundice, they hepatitis A and they suffer from yellow jaundice because of inflamed uh, liver and gallbladder and bile duct and the body starts becoming yellowish, you actually lose your taste for sweetness. In that condition, anything sweet that you put in your mouth tastes bitter. I mean, really bitter and foul. I know, speaking from experience, I, it's happened to me when my first time I, I lived in India. And it's quite shocking. I mean, you, you've got, you can't imagine what it's like to be in this diseased condition and where something that is naturally sweet, like a piece of rock candy, tastes so foul and bitter. But part of the Ayurvedic cure for somebody uh, um, who is suffering from yellow jaundice, apart from um, medication that's taken, is to suck on rock candy, keep it in the mouth at all times. And it gradually helps to reverse the condition. And what happens is suddenly you realize one day that the bitterness has gone away. And you may not taste yet the sweetness, but the bitterness is gone. And then the more your body heals, and eventually it's like, okay, you regain the taste of, of sweet again. And it's a very pleasant experience. Material life conditions us to this idea, this idea that the immediate gratification, where we're going to get this big rush right in the beginning. And then we, we pursue it and we chase it and chase it. And then it all just falls apart and becomes very unpleasant, a very unpleasant experience, even very tragic and can be very sad. And we're not very familiar with this idea that perhaps we are existing in a diseased condition, meaning being conditioned by material conception, material consciousness. And what we need to do is undergo a process that is going to change our consciousness, the way we are thinking and the, what we are interested in and what we want to do and where we want to focus our life. And so the spiritual experience is often likened to that. We may find that when we, for instance, chant this spiritual sound that we, we use in the beginning and end of the classes, sometimes for some people, the first time they hear it, it kind of really touches them. But then when you ask somebody to try and practice it, I can, I can remember myself, I was taught how to use this, these beads, japa beads, for the meditation process. And trying to sit down and, and hold these beads and on each bead chant one mantra and then go to the next, I felt like I was dying. It was like really an unpleasant experience. I was very attracted to singing. That seemed, oh, it was like really easy and it, I was very drawn. But the, the, doing japa meditation was like, oh my God, do I really have to do this? <laughs> it was extremely difficult for me. 
But what happens is over time, as the purification of the heart and mind takes place, the sweetness of spiritual life, the sweetness of the flavor of the spiritual experience begins to awaken and begins to increase to the point where one actually becomes bathed in like an ocean of, of transcendental nectar. So, um, you know, the, the, this is completely different from the material experience. The material experience where everybody wants happiness. They don't understand that material happiness has another side to it, distress. I mean, can you get a coin that just has a heads on it or a tails and nothing on the other side? We know that, that if you try to give that to somebody, nobody will take it. It's got to be fake. The coin has two sides. And the coin of material life has two sides to everything. You cannot have what we're calling material happiness, the happiness, the small amount though it may be, or even some joyfulness from the material experience. You cannot have that without the distress that accompanies it. This material experience the happiness is not lasting. Anything that has a beginning also has an end. And the fundamental reality is it will not completely satisfy us. It is not what we are actually seeking and wanting and desiring. So how should a yogi view um, material happiness? Fundamentally, we're advised to live through this world and to accept happiness and distress that comes from the material experience, to simply accept it for what it is, not to be elated and chasing and looking for the happy experience and trying so hard to avoid the distress. You cannot avoid it. It will come. The happiness will come. The distress will come. The thing is to accept it at face value for what it is and not make that the focus of your life, but rather to dive deeply inside, go on a spiritual inward journey and discover this great ocean of unlimited happiness that resides in the very core of our being. So Krishna, he advises Arjuna who, he says, O oh, son of Kunti, the non-permanent, non-permanent appearance of happiness and distress and their disappearance in due course are like the appearance and disappearance of winter and summer seasons. They arise from sense perception, O Skyan of Bharata, and one must learn to tolerate them without being disturbed. O best amongst men, Arjuna, the person who is not disturbed by happiness and distress and is steady in both is certainly eligible for liberation. And then later in the Gita, in the uh, fifth chapter, 23rd verse, he says, before giving up this present body, if one is able to tolerate the urges of the material senses 
and to check the force of desire and anger. He is well situated and is happy in this world. So, I mean, this is like actually a radical conception for the average person in this world. We are taught and we think that chasing the material experiences, the central experiences of this world, is where we will find happiness. And here we're being told, no, 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 that's not a good place to go. It just does not end well. Rather, it's better that you attempt to exercise control and discretion to accept things that come of their own accord and don't be overly, overly obsessed with them but rather to be seeking your eternal well-being, your actual happiness in a different place, a spiritual place. So this condition that we're speaking of is true harmony. Harmony is not mean to live in so-called harmony with this world, meaning to you know, try to find a balanced way of living so you can maximize enjoyment here. Real harmony means to live in your spiritual state where this becomes the foundation. Krishna says, merely renouncing all activities, yet not engaging in devotional service of the Lord cannot make one happy. But a thoughtful person engaged in such devotional or loving service can achieve the supreme without delay. So this is speaking to um, the subject of what is our eternal function. You know, this need for happiness, the need for love, they arise from the very core of our being. They are truly spiritual needs and can only be completely fulfilled in relation to the Supreme Soul. So in another verse um, from the sixth chapter, 27th verse, it says, a yogi whose mind is fixed on me, this meaning Krishna, verily attains the highest perfection of transcendental happiness. He is beyond the mode of passion. He realizes his qualitative identity with the Supreme, and thus he is freed from all the reactions to past deeds. This reference to past deeds is important because it deals with the law of karma. The fact is that every single action that you undertake will result in some karmic result. Even in this lifetime, if you're trying to give out positive vibes and just thinking positively and acting nicely and being the good person, it doesn't mean you won't get hit by a train. You know, a train load of bad karma may be coming down the track from past activity, which you cannot avoid. But here it talks about 
when a person is able to attain this highest perfection, this condition of real transcendental happiness, where one is living in spiritual harmony. And that spiritual harmony is with the Supreme Soul, the actual Lord of our heart, engaging in a relationship of love and a relationship of service. In that condition, one becomes actually freed from the reactions of all past deeds. And it is only in this state that one will find and experience um, true and, and lasting happiness. So with that, I would like to thank you all very much for joining us today. Um, I hope, you know, there are some people that will hear the things I have spoken about. And even though they are spiritual, uh, transcendental, and, and completely truthful subject, and even though we are shining a torchlight on where to find real happiness, because some of the ideas we've spoken about may be contrary to what a person holds to be true, their own belief. Therefore, they might be a little bit upset, and I'm very sorry if uh, in speaking I have actually upset anyone. That is not the intention. We feel great distress seeing how people unnecessarily suffer in this world, in, in their lives, and how it does not have to be that way. The actual things that we are looking for within our heart of hearts can be achieved, but it will require some change in how we are thinking how we are looking at things and where we are going in our life. So I am humbly asking that you will consider these things because they are for your eternal benefit. So thank you very much. And I'll invite you to join with us here in um, closing the talk with um, the chanting of this transcendental sound. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare Hare, Hari Rama 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 Hari 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 Krishna Hari Krishna 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 Hari 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 Rama Hari Rama Rama Hari 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 Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hari Hari, Hari Rama, Hari Rama, Rama Rama, Hari Hari, Hari Krishna.
Krishna, 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 Hari 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 Rama, 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 
Krishna Krishna Hari 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 Rama Hari Rama 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 Hari 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 Krishna Hari Krishna 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 Hari 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 Rama Hari
Thank you very much for joining us today and we look forward to seeing you next week when we continue um, with this series on the Bhagavad Gita. Thank you. Namaste.